and welcome to Big Gay Energy. I'm Bree. I'm Theora. And I'm Caitlin. Come along with us while we dive into the fun and nuances of queer media. Representation matters, and we're here to talk about it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we have a super amazing, talented guest, Tracy Dawson, who's an actor, TV writer, and author. We're going to talk all about her book, Let Me Be Frank, today. Thank you so, so very much for coming to join us today. Very happy to be here. Woo! (laughs) Yes. Okay. So for the listeners at home who may have not read Let Me Be Frank, could you just share what the book is about for them? Well, first of all, I always love to say the full title because it really tells people exactly what it is and exactly what to expect in in terms of tone, right? So the full title is Let Me Be Frank, a book about women who dress like men to do shit they weren't supposed to do. So it's like if anyone picks this book up at the bookstore, they're like, oh, that's what it is. Like you don't have to have any other questions, you know, and also like just the, the quirky, witty sassiness of the title, it tells you like this isn't like an academic, uh, dry history book. Right. And so I definitely, my, yeah, my background is a comedy writer. And so I want, you know, comedian, actress, comedy writer. And it's like, I want to use the tools that I have because when I talk about this stuff in private, like with my friends, I'm funny. I rant, I rage. It's just like, I wanted to sort of bring that energy, that passionate, hopefully funny energy to the book to spread the good word about defiant women. It, it, yeah, I will say the tone is amazing and it definitely keeps you entertained. So if you're like not into dry history, but you like learning about history, this book is absolutely perfect. Thanks. I mean, I, I had to definitely keep myself entertained. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't want to be dry. I don't want, and also, you know, when you want to spread the word about smashing the patriarchy and, um, just like women who didn't take no for an answer. Like it's for some people that's medicine, right? So it's like the idea of helping the medicine go down with (laughs) entertainment and humor is definitely the goal. And that's what I tried to do as as a comedian when I was starting out in my twenties, you know, it's just like, I wanted to, you know, attack gender roles, attack the patriarchy. It just, and and so I did it in this sort of like cute, fun package. (laughs) I thought I tried. That is a noble goal and something we need more of in the world. And uh, in the book, you actually talk about kind of like what led to the creation of this book during the 2013 water bottle tour. 
<laughs> when essentially you were shrugged off as a female writer capable of writing female needs. So I'm curious, like since 2013, has that aspect of the industry changed at all? Well, uh, you know, oh, I, have, I have a lot of opinions. Um, <laughs> so just to give context to the listener, uh, so it's like I, I was on this interview with an executive at a major studio, you know, and it was, you go on these meetings to because they're trying to find writers for their new shows. And so when, when asked, you know, which of our shows did you connect with? Could you see yourself writing on? I listed a few. And that executive then said, well, none of those shows have any female needs. And I, I struggled to continue in that meeting without, because I'm an Aries, okay? And <laughs> I am fiery. Mars is my ruler, the god of war. And so I was, I w even though I was a younger person, I wanted to like go, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you just said that to my face. So that leads to my answer about have things changed. I just don't think there's as much being, like, I think she would, that executive who was a woman, I don't think that executive would say that to my face in 2023. Now, are there still feelings of, you know, if there's two women in the room out of a room of t 10 or 11 or 12 writers that you filled your quota? Probably in some rooms, yes. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I think that certain rooms are a lot more diverse and a lot more like there's certain showrunners just that just know that if you have gender parity and if you have people of color and if you have queer people and every and like there's a whole bunch of people in that room that you're going to have a better show. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I will stand on that soapbox. I will. Yes. I will die on that yes. hill. Certain showrunners have woken up to that. Others, maybe older, more white and male and cis and like you know maybe those people are still holding on to this sort of older I mean they, they still exist they still exist those rooms um on certain shows definitely still exist and it's and it's hard to not be considered the female to, the token female in the room or the token black person in the room and it's like it's it, 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 uh, I I this is how I this is how I get when I talk about it. It's upsetting, you know, because I just go, it doesn't make for yeah. a better show. It doesn't. So it's like I don't know unless what they're doing is they're protecting their ground, their little patriarchal, you know, white supremacist boys club. <laughs> boys club, like where they can do. It's like it wasn't that long ago that I had friends who were telling me about like leaving the job every day and crying because it was just a, just a room of toxic masculinity. I mean, that's not that long ago that I was having those conversations. And so, yeah, I think in some ways it's, I mean, this is a long winded answer, but I think in some ways it's absolutely changing and we're seeing it with incredible TV shows that are coming out there. But some of that old guard is still absolutely a play. I mean, I don't want to work for those people. If, if anything, I want to be in the room so that I can like, you know, <laughs> fight them. But I don't think that's good for my career necessarily. <laughs> it's true though. I mean, it is unfortunate that that still prevails. And what's sad is that like audiences can tell, like you can tell like the voice behind some of these projects and you're just like, this doesn't feel authentic for what I'm watching. Cause like 
lived experience matters when it comes to really writing and storytelling, like truly. Yeah, because lived experience also leads to specificity and specificity leads to better characters and better jokes. Like just as a, just from a comedy standpoint, specificity is like, so if I lived it and I'm bringing that story to the room, you can see it on that screen. It's like, I say all the time when I'm watching something, I said, oh, this scene, this thing that's happening in the show right now, this happened to one of the writers. Because there's like, you can tell when they're just going, maybe we should uh, throw in something that's, uh, you know, we should, you know, we got to make it diverse. Like you can always tell when they've just right. said that they have to <laughs> mm-hmm. make it diverse. Yeah. It's like that superficial stereotype joke. And you're like, Ooh, the ones that don't age well necessarily. The other thing that, you know, happens is like, sometimes you have a great room, a very, uh, like an actually diverse, incredibly, uh, just people of all different backgrounds and stuff. And then networks get involved and, and they sometimes note you to death. They go, Oh, we can't do this. And we can't do that. And, Oh, that's a little bit too. And it's like, you're killing the authentic, like you're the thing that's the special sauce. You're trying to water it down. That's because people don't want to be to this or to that. And it's like, it's, I think that when showrunners are given an opportunity to just like truly just tell their stories, like let them tell it, let, let them swing for the fences. I, I, I would rather that, right? Like d- tell exactly the story yeah. you want to tell and like let them, and if it fails, it fails. Like if it doesn't hit, if people don't like it, you know, but when you try to just keep everything a little neutral and watered down and like not too gay, not too female, not too black. Like, it's like, you just sense that, like, it's almost like they're, they're risk averse and they're scared. It's like, that's not how you make art. That's not how you make things that change the game. Totally. Yeah. And especially in comedy where like you know, most comedy that like is like timeless, like it was pushing the envelope for the time. So that must yeah. be extremely frustrating to try and write comedy and like have it be diluted by like other agendas, essentially from the network, like you said. Yeah. And they, and like, you know, when I've sold scripts and developed scripts, uh, it's like, you do have to take certain things into it, like that they, they are on the sort of sales side of things, like the executives. And so it's a balance, right? Like knowing what notes to take that are, that are like, like, okay, I don't know about that. They, that, that, that it's very, uh, on their minds that they want to attract different audiences, meaning we would really love people to watch this with their families. We would really love like young people and old people to watch this together. That's really hard to like try to find the show that like is going to make everybody want to tune in together. Um, But anyway, that's just an And what I'm saying is when they have input or data, like it's hard to know like when to go, okay, thanks. I didn't know that. Thanks for that information. And when to sort of push back and go, but that's not what this show is. Like, you know, so it's like to which, mm-hmm. which um, battles to choose uh, to keep your voice authentic and like, and when to be collaborative and when to say, thanks, I didn't know that. And that's like, it's just all a dance, right? We're Absolutely. talking so much about TV. Absolutely. It's so funny. <laughs> it's like I wrote, what's so funny is Let Me Be Frank started as a TV project that I did not sell. And uh, oh, it was born out of rejection and failure because I didn't set, it was, it was an idea I had for an anthology TV show about all these incredible people. Right. And then when I had all this research and I had all these pages and I didn't sell the project, I felt like so 
deflated, demoralized, depressed, all the D's. And I just was like, I can't give up on these women. Like I, I can't let it go. So I wonder if this is a book, a thought I never, a thought that I had never had before in my life uh, to write a book. And so I just started writing and I was completely inspired by them, by the people in the book. Like it wasn't about me, yes. which was a great feeling as an artist, you know, especially, you know, when you have a background as a comedian, as an actor, like in my, in my early twenties, like it was all about, look at me, 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 like you're so like self-centered. And as I've grown as an artist and developed more into a writer who wants to like say something, like I want to say something. I want people to read this book and to go, oh my gosh, you know, like, holy fuck. So it was incredible that I had the thought, I wonder if this is a book. And then four months later, we'd sold the book to HarperCollins. It was just like a completely unbelievable. What a journey. Yeah. I mean, it's been amazing because I just go, oh, okay. Because I'm working on my second book now. Again, a thought that I never thought I would have or like say to you. So, um, and I'm going to continue in the in the vein. It's very much I, I I don't like I'm superstitious, so I don't like talking too much about it, because we're also just started to go to publishers. Um, so it hasn't That's sold so yet. Exciting. It's exciting, but it's scary. As I mean, it's very vulnerable making, yeah. right? Like you have this new baby, mm-hmm. and you're like, "Do you love my baby?" You know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it's very much a companion piece to Frank in terms of women. And uh, fuck the patriarchy and like, you know, women's, women's history having to be unearthed and excavated. And why was it buried in the first place? Why was it left off the history pages? Why are these biopics about all these dudes being made and all these people? It's just, you know, it, it's like if I could use my writing, my voice, my humor to help bring that out like this is what I want to do this is like and if and if I get to still make tv down the line I would love that as well well let we would love that too and let me be frank is is truly an incredible book it's like the perfect mixture of like history and humor that just highlights all these extraordinary women and I'm wondering in in all the research you did do you have this may be an impossible question but do you have like a favorite heroine from the book or like a top like top three that you looked into? I mean, yes, I get asked this question a lot, so I'm not shocked by it. It is hard because like, listen, on one day <laughs> I'm thinking about this person and another day I'm thinking about that person. It's really interesting because I mean, what I hear from readers too is like, I love to hear readers favorites because it's, there's some personal thing that happens when people are reading it. Like they relate or they're inspired or they, it's, it's like, it could be someone from the 1700s, but people are relating and they're inspired. I feel the same way. I felt the same way as I was writing, you know? So, I mean, I did a book event last night and I read, um, the Rena Rusty Kanakogi chapter. And, um, and I've read that on a radio. I, I, I mean, I've read that chapter several times and it's, I have to say every single time, I get choked up when I'm reading it. And it's like, I wrote this. I I wrote this. I read through this chapter 1 million times while copy editing. And to me, it's still, it's not my writing I'm being moved by. I'm being moved, obviously, by Rusty. And so um, Rusty Kanakogi is basically why women's judo exists in the Olympics. 
And the reason that that happened is because when she was 22, she um, chopped off her hair and taped down her breasts and competed with her all-male YMCA judo um, team in New York. And, um, and she won. She like won in her weight class. And then when she went up to get her medal, there was a suspicious tournament dude. And he was like, are you a girl? And she said, yeah, I am. And they stripped her of her medal right then and there. And that moment set everything in motion. I mean, she was 22 and it changed her entire life. It changed her life. It changed countless women's lives, future generations' lives, the Olympics. It changed everything. She mortgaged her house. She remortgaged her house so that she could fund a women's judo tournament, championship, something or other at Madison Square Garden. She got into screaming matches. She threatened to sue the Olympic Committee. In 1988, she threatened to sue the Olympic Committee, and then they finally put women's judo in the Olympics that year, and she was the the team cap, like she was the coach. Like, it's an unbelievable story. I had never heard of Rusty Kanakogi. Um, Her birth name was Rena Glickman. She actually went to Japan because their training was so limited. She couldn't train. She couldn't compete in the United States because women's judo wasn't a thing. So she was always training with men, which was fine because she beat them. She was amazing. She was, she was, she was a large, tough woman. And, but she felt so limited that she um, left and went to Japan and she was training there. There are women, there's women's judo in Japan have been since the 1920s, but she dominated everybody. Like she pulverized all her teammates. So for the first time in history, they let a woman train with the men in Japan and it was rusty. And then she went on to meet her husband, Ryohei Kanakogi. And, um, you know, she's, she's buried in the family tomb, the Kanakogi tomb. It says American samurai. I mean, she's a phenomenally inspiring, incredible woman. And just, I have a scoop just two weeks ago. So, uh, Wisconsin public radio featured the book. Um, and they read out that chapter and, uh, Rusty's daughter, Dr. Jean Kanakogi heard the broadcast uh, reached out to the radio station and said she was sobbing while listening to it. So then they put the radio station, put us together, like connected us. And then I sent her a copy of the book. I, I wrote, I inscribed the book. I sent it to her. She sent me a copy of her book and she was just like unbelievable. Like I, I don't know why I hadn't thought to connect with the family before. I guess I didn't really know, like, where is everybody? Like who's, because I know that Rusty died in 2009. So I just was kind of like, you know, I'm just over here doing my research. So an unbelievable thrill to connect with Dr. Jean and, and for her to feel so moved by my portrait of her mom. Just amazing. That's so beautiful. And didn't they also like, didn't she get that medal? The YMCA like gave her the medal back too. Like eventually they're like, you can have this now. Like five months before she died like right at the end of her life, which is kind of the thing that chokes me up while I'm reading the chapter, you know, is like they reawarded her the medal that never should have been stripped from her. And um, she just deserves, uh, you know, like every single person in my book, they deserve to be known, to be known by millions, to be, to be lauded, to be celebrated. It's their stories are incredible. Like, like, I mean, that's just not a great story. Like she changed the sport. So to me, I'm like, mm-hmm. 
like, um, I just want to shout from the rooftops. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, and it's like why I'm so like, so good at hustling about the book. Like I like to promote, I like to get out there. I like to do podcasts. I like, because it's, again, it's about them. It's like, I want to spread the news. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there, there's a, and it's amazing that like stories like that, like even though those people, like they're so impactful, they're connecting people now. So they transcend time really, which is amazing. Yeah. There are some passages though in the book that feel uh, uh, eerily familiar. For example, there's a quote from the book that I wrote. So in the 1800s, the Parisian authorities issued an order requiring women to apply for permits to wear male clothes, AKA pants. And we're living in a time where a couple of days ago, a state in the United States passed a law essentially banning drag, which is very 19th century Parisian, which would essentially do this exact same thing. So what is the significance of telling stories like, like that in this book? Um, of just these people who carried on with their lives despite these things happening. I mean, not to mention, I think it's, isn't it Wyoming that just said that women can't wear a, a sleeveless outfits, like a government officials can't show up to the state legislature. Yes. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, yes. I don't know the Correct. exact, I could be like, I could, it's some state, some state or some place is saying some women can't, you know, you can't bear your arms, but you can bear arms like, okay. Um, right. And it was also the 1960s. <laughs> Um, it was the nineteen. It was the nineteen sixties when in Chicago, uh, there were laws against women wearing pants. Like it was, it was like dressed in a gender not of your own. I mean, it's not that long ago. So it's like Paris and the. No. I mean, that law stayed on the books for two hundred years in in Paris. Um, yes, it's it's all bodily autonomy. It's all trying to control uh, women, to control our bodies that were property that you, that you're our daddies. I mean, th there's the, the story in the book about Catherine Switzer, who was the first woman to run the Boston marathon. The reason she's included in the book is not because she dressed as a man, but she registered for the marathon using just her initials. They assumed she was male. And so when she showed up, they were like, Oh my God, what? Um, but her doctors, when she started to run um, competitively, first of all, it was not common for women to run. And uh, the doctors all said, you know, we really don't advise this. Your uterus is going to fall out. And, and, um, and so the Amateur Athletic Association or whatever they were, like there were rules written in the document that said women are only allowed to run for this long. Like that, it's like you can't dress this way. You can't impersonate a man, whether it's you just want to wear trousers because it's comfortable or whether you want to be a drag artist. I mean, it's all just control, but also you can't run. Your uterus is going to fall out. It's not, it's like, it's, I, I, I can't, I can't really, I mean, to answer your question in a very roundabout way, because I get all rambly and ranty because it just makes me crazy as it should, as it should. Right. Yes. Yes, I understand. Um, I feel all of this. But it's like now, it's it's like, I mean, I I guess I feel a little naive that I never thought in one million years I'd be alive to see Roe v. Wade be overturned, right? A lot of experts, a lot of people who work in reproductive justice said, you know, we did see the signs. We did, we did know. Even they said we didn't think it was going to happen, right? So here we are living in yeah. this reality where a lot of people want to, talk about what's happening in Iran, 
but I mean, it's, it's here. It's like, it's, it's here. It's there. It's everywhere. It's everything, everywhere, all at once. Woo. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which just won the uh, independent spirit award last night. Um, so I, that's why it's relevant is because this isn't history. And by the, and by the way, like, so this is a book of women's history, but there are people in here from the sixties and seventies. There's Maria Torpakai who was born in 1990, who, uh, went on to become the top rated, um, female squash player in Pakistan, but she was born, uh, in the tribal areas in the North and the Taliban, that's where the Taliban were. And, um, born a a woman she couldn't go outside as a little girl she couldn't go outside like unless she was with a male companion and her dad saw that she was a a tomboy uh and he was like tomboy i mean this doesn't exist in our tribal area right so um he allowed her to cut off her hair and 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 live as a boy and it wasn't about gender identity i mean it's hard to say i mean i think it's like very fluid but maria like left and went to canada uh, to train and to live, she is a woman. Um, but like, she just wanted to play. She just wanted to run and play. And so her dad was like, you'll never be able to do that as a little girl. So now you're my son. And so she lived as a boy. I don't know how many years total, but, um, then when her, she was playing squash and then they found her out that she was a a girl. And then they were like, you know, they all bets were off. They were like, screw you. Da, da, da. So then she's like, okay, well then I'll just become the best girl. And then she just started to train and compete rose to the ranks, number one, top rated squash player in Pakistan. But because she started to get press and her face started to be in newspapers, then they started to get death threats uh, from the Taliban and it became very dangerous, which is why she had to leave and eventually landed in Canada, my hometown, Toronto. Woo woo. And so this is just an example that that's 19, she was born in 1990. Like that's very recent. There's a chapter in my book long before this exploded in, in Iran with Masa Amini. Um, the chapter in my book is about women in Iran who disguise themselves as men just to go watch sports in the stadium, just to watch sports, not to play the sports, just because they're a fan of football, AKA soccer. So there's like, there's stories from, ancient history in my book and their stories from two years ago, well, three years ago. So um, that's why I want to write this book is to say that this isn't ancient history. This is now. And just like you said, that passage that you read sounds eerily similar. We're just trying to like, I mean, honestly, just can we just live? Like, can we just live? Yeah. And you definitely point that out so many times in the book or you're like, they weren't trying to make a statement. They were just trying to live. And like their choices were like, be at home, be a nun, be like this. <laughs> like, you know, it was about freedom and it's wild too in the book. <clears throat> and you kind of mentioned it with like a medical when it comes to women is a whole nother bucket of madness. But there's a lot of times where historians like AKA cis white dudes will try to write off female ambition and be like, well, you know, something tragic happened to her that made her act weird. And that's why she did this it versus like, she wanted to do this. So what did you learn about female ambition from writing this book? Oh my gosh. I mean, there were times when I was researching and writing this book, I did go lie down, right? Like to, to, because it was really hard. Like some of the stuff, I mean, there's a, there's a chapter on the witch hunts in, um, Scotland. And um, even though that chapter is about a woman who disguised herself as a man, 
to be a witch pricker, to be a witch hunter, um, AKA that's its own form of ambition, but it's also a sort of a form of self-preservation because if she's disguised as a man, she's not going to be accused of witchcraft and possibly tortured and killed. Right. And so, but I learned a lot about that time and it was really fucking hard. Like if you're really feeling it, like that's, it's, it's like, you know, woo. Um, sorry, wait, I left my train of thought. What did I learn about female ambition? Well, I learned that it was like a lot of, some people like ended up in mental institutions and didn't go well for some, for some people. One of my other favorite chapters is Dorothy Lawrence, who just wanted to be a journalist. Uh, she was in England and, um, I just love her so much. And I feel like she was done such a, she was done so dirty and she just wanted to be a journalist. I mean, obviously she, she was a writer. I'm a writer. Like I feel this kinship, but also she was fiery and she went for it, which is also what I think of myself as. And so she got on the ferry with her bicycle during world war one and traveled from England to France to a battle ravaged country to try to get to the front so she could report on it because she knew if she was going to be taken seriously, she would eat a scoop, right? And she thought, well, this is the scoopest of all the scoops. And she was like, I'm, I'm going to be a war correspondent. And she, I mean, I, I, it's still, this is an unbelievable chapter. It's like, like Rusty. I could say this probably about every chapter though, if I'm honest, right? But um, <laughs> she goes over, she takes the ferry over, just her and her bicycle. And she, she meets up with some of her countrymen from Britain, soldiers. They help smuggle her the makings of an outfit. They help, they cut her hair off. You know, um, she has to wrap herself in sort of this cottony gauze. She, she describes to smooth down her natural womanly curves. She eventually gets to the front. She's hiding out in some abandoned cottage, like starving half the time. She becomes friends with this guy, uh, sapper Tommy Dunn and he's like yeah I'm gonna help get you get you there like they there's people that supported her 10 days after being at the front and helping with the mines that's what sappers did they sort of made these mines and then they blew things up and they you know it was terrible warfare trench warfare terrible um but she uh, was found out and then she became a political prisoner they did they thought she was a spy they thought she was a prostitute they and they kept on asking they uh, we don't understand what are you doing? Why are you here? And she's like, I'm a writer. I want to report. They didn't understand it. And I said, as I said in the book, was female ambition so hard to, yes, it was so hard. It was so hard for them to comprehend. And, you know, she was, she was holed up in a nunnery because they weren't sure if she was a spy. So they didn't want to just let her go. Cause, and, and then when they did let her go back home, she was like forbidden from writing anything about it until the war was over. So she had to wait till the armistice. I think the book came out in 1919. And I read the book. It's available on Google Books. I look up Sapper Dorothy Lawrence, anyone that wants to. I love this book. She's funny. She's self-deprecating. She's sassy. She's smart. Like, in my opinion, that book should have been a hit, right? Well, the, the press ripped her apart. She's a freak. You know, they called her a freak. It makes me so mad because um, her mom died when she was a young teenager and then, and then she tried to make it as a writer. This didn't work out well. The book was a failure and her life ends in a, you know, an institution. She died in an institution. And 
I just think, would that have been me? I mean, I don't know. I just know that she, I read that book, that, that, that little book that she wrote, and I thought it was smart and funny. And I love that she, she was also painted as a failure. Like, what a failure. And I say to that, in the book, I say, the moment she got on that ferry with her bike, she's a success. She's a winner. Because to me, like this book to me should be, it's like, it doesn't matter whether you achieved the goal. Like you tried. People who are trying, that's all I want. Just keep trying. I mean, I think maybe it's because my life as an artist, this feast and famine lifestyle I've had, like I have huge wins and then I have big, you know, it's like, keep trying. As I said at the very end of the introduction, I said, you know, we're going to, we get knocked down, but we always get up. We always get up. We are, and, and that's, that's why also like intersectional, like queer people, people of color, women, like, no, we've got your back. We've got your, like, let's, we're, we got to do this together because the patriarchy is, it's a fucking powerful drug, man. It, it's a terrible drug. I'm a pharmacist. I don't recommend this drug. Um. <laughs> terrible side effects. Terrible. Terrible side effects. It's bad for all involved. Uh, even men, it's not good. Oh, no, um, absolutely. But it's interesting you bring up. Uh, yeah. No, go ahead. <clears throat> no, I just wanted to say, uh, I mean, the patriarchy. Oh, sorry, there's a lag. There's a lag. But yeah, like there the patriarchy is, is not good for anybody. Like the, It's just not good for anybody. Okay, now I'm done. <laughs> No, that needed to be said. Thank you. Um, and the intersectionality is really, really important. Something I learned a lot of great things from reading this book. So thank you. This is literally my jam, this book. I love it so much. Um, so thank you. <laughs> and something I learned that I had no idea was um, about the the drag kings that came to the America and they're like the great, great grandmothers of like women in comedy. I had no idea. And you're a comedian yourself. And I'm, I'm wondering how the playing field for female comedians has changed since Annie Hindle came to America. Oh, Lord. Uh, listen, I certainly am not a, a, an expert and I haven't been on stage as a comedian in, in a number of years. I do think of myself more as a humorist now because I do the written word. Um, but yeah, I started in comedy and I, it was definitely part of like pushing my feminist agenda from the very beginning. Uh, and I liked attention. Like I told, like I mentioned earlier, like I, I was very much like, you know, <laughs> look at me. That was, I had to get a lot of therapy. And then when I got therapy, <laughs> I needed it less, um, but I'm still love to write jokes. So, but in terms of how things have changed for female comedians, look, I don't know. I'm not the expert and I'm not even going to pretend, but I will say this, my favorite comedians the comedians that I think are the best are women. It's not because, I mean, I, I don't know what other people are seeing. I just know that I think that they, that some people have blinders on and they, and, and they, they, some dudes have blinders on and they think that comedy is like a, a man's game. It's like, I, I don't even know what you're seeing. It's like you're on a different planet because to me, the people that are the absolute best, I mean, we're talking Maria Bamford, we're talking Beth Stelling. Um, Oh God, I could name so many. Those are two of my absolute favorite comedians. Just uh, Atsuko Okatsuka. Oh my God, her new special at HBO Max. Like, like it's it's like these are the best people doing it for my money. And um, and so I I can't really answer your. I don't think I'm the expert to answer that question. However, when I was discovering Annie Hindle and that she came over from England and um, 
her whole act was male impersonation. Obviously, the term I don't know when the term drag king or drag queen came into to usage. I know that that's not what they were called back then at the turn of the century. They were called uh, male impersonators. And that was her whole act. And so it was like singing. It was like song. And it was very witty. It was all comedy. It was all funny, right? But it was also, there was singing involved. And so the acts were very much like, I mean, it came, it was the variety stage. It came out of vaudeville. And so this she was supposedly, you know, the, the notices that you read about Annie Hindle was that it was just like, she, she like it was jaw dropping, right? That she could make you think that she was a man doing, doing these, um, these songs and, and, and jokes and she would banter with the audience. And so when I was studying her, um, reading some academic books about her and the, and one of the writers scholars said, uh, you know, this was, this is the earliest, form of women in comedy I just got chills because it's like those are the shoulders that we stand on you know and and as I say in the chapter I'm pretty annoyed that um drag kings are so in the shadows uh when compared to drag queens and um that you know obviously RuPaul's Drag Race has changed the game it's changed everything I'm obsessed with it everybody I know is obsessed with it but I don't really understand, first of all, why hasn't there been a king season? I mean, that just seems like a natural, yes. like, like there's been, you know, it's in Canada now, it's in the UK, it's in Australia, like their drag race is all over. So they're definitely diversifying in terms of going to all these different countries. How about an all king season? Or how about a mixed season? How about, how about it's all drag? Because the thing is, there's more yeah. Like there's more gender fuck people now in 2023 than ever before in terms of people like mm -hmm. drag performers who a don't identify as either gender people who are fully decked out in feminine garb, but with massively hairy chests. Like we need to see, like we need drag to diversify. We need to, 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 um, totally. really welcome in everybody, like everybody. And that includes bio Queens, right? It's just like, I want to be, it's like, I, I kind of want to do drag and I want to be able to do male and female characters, right? Like, I, like I, to me, it's like the more, the more like fuck it up as possible. And I just would think that RuPaul would be behind that. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's, let's oh, fuck totally. it up. And so I just have a bug in my craw. That's a very old sentence. That's like such an old phrase, like from a different generation, a bug in my craw about the fact that drag kings don't really have the the representation, the respect, the platform <laughs> that they should. And um, I kind of want to do more writing about it. I don't know how I'm going to do that, whether it's like an article, like a like a feature. Um, I don't know. I, I just keep thinking about it. You know what I mean? Because I think it'd be great for me to, I mean, I would think I, I would love it, like to, to, to actually do it to perform it and then to write about it and to write about the people that should have a lot more attention. It actually is very annoying, isn't it? Like, don't you think it's crazy that it's like all the most famous drag performers are like queens? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I never heard of, this is gonna sound weird, but like, I never heard of drag kings before I watched like The L Word and they talked about drag kings. And I was like, oh, this is a thing too? Because I, I thought it was only drag queens but it would be amazing to see just like drag and especially with the way drag is being treated in america i feel like that kind of piece of whatever medium it is would be so it would be incredible and edu like 
educational in a way because it's more than just like male female impersonator or whatever it's it's more than that it's a community thing it's a cultural thing it you know came out of a historical time period that was tough for people and like it could be anything and expanded like you said and the possibilities are endless and i I mean shouldn't be shocked that you had never heard of drag kings but i'm sure there's a lot of people that don't know and if you're listening to this podcast look in your town go online and search drag king shows because they do exist they're just not as popular in smaller venues like they're just a little bit more underground which is why we should support them because that's dope um like when i finally went and saw my first drag king show i was like uh, that was, that's love and, and, and just actually feeling like pure joy. I was like, oh, I'm so in love. Like I'm so in love. <laughs> so, and then I just was like, I want to know more. I want to do it. I mean, uh, it, there's some incredible uh, performers in Los Angeles, but even them, you don't hear about it in necessarily, like you kind of have to go a little bit digging. So I, I urge people to right. seek out um, drag king performer performances. And uh, RuPaul, if for some reason you're listening to this podcast, um, please take us up on the diversifying aspect. <laughs> we probably watch <laughs> a lot. I mean, I would please. help. Like, I would like. I would. I would love to help you be. Um, what do you call those people who like go out and they scout? I will. I would love to scout for you. Yes. You know, I can hit the road. I, there's yes. a lot of people who just in this city who would be fantastic on the show. Uh, but yeah, RuPaul, call me. <laughs> yeah, call Tracy. Uh, so throughout your career, you've had a, a number of different uh, creative jobs. What was the journey like going from comedian to actor to like writer? Um, so I totally thought I was just going to be an actor, you know, and um, I went to theater school and uh, liked it for about five minutes. And then I was just like so anxious to start my life. I was like, this is boring and stupid and nobody's inspiring me. And I thought like university was going to be like standing on my desk saying, Oh, captain, my captain to Robin Williams. Like I just thought like higher education was going to just like fill me with, (laughs) you know? And so I said to my parents, I have to drop out. And they said, please don't drop out. And I said, "Uh, I have to drop out. And so I did. And I moved downtown Toronto and I thought I was going to be an actor. And I just went to all the theater. I just was obsessed with theater and seeing shows and acting. And then at an audition, I met someone that was like, you're really funny. We're looking for another girl in our comedy troupe, <laughs> it's just like you've heard, you, we've all heard it a million times. We're looking for a girl. Uh, I guess I'm a girl. Um, so I just suddenly found myself in a sketch comedy troupe in Toronto in, you know, sort of the alternative comedy scene, which was really big at the time. And um, we got a lot of attention and I started to do characters. Like I started to do stuff that wasn't stand up. I started off doing like, you know, monologues and character bits or whatever. And people would, I was just on all these shows. And then I started to do stand up, And because I just was like, I got to just do it all, you know? And then Second City came calling, which was amazing. So Second City, huge institution, started in Chicago, also Toronto. And they said, you know, we'd like you to audition for the main stage, which is very unusual. Usually you sort of work your way through Second City Training Company, and then you eventually get to audition. But they had seen my work, and I don't know why. I was just a, a young thing, 23. And they said, come and audition. And I had never improvised. So then they were like, and you're going to improvise? Anyway, it was. I just kind of got thrown into it, which was amazing. Because guess what? When you're thrown into the pool, you've got to learn to swim. 
so then I was Second City main stage and that, uh, you know, I was very lucky. I got a lot of mentions in a lot of reviews. I got a lot of attention. And so that then naturally led to um, an acting career. So I was acting in a lot of TV, Canadian television, some American stuff that was shooting in Canada. And uh, I, there I was like, just like I, I, I told my parents, I'm going to do this. And then I was doing it. And it was, it was sort of a mix. Like, you know, I started in the comedy and I was doing the comedy, but obviously I wanted to work. I wanted to make money. And so uh, I was TV and film, theater, some musicals. And I made a decision, like I could have gone down this musical route early on. And I just noticed that, like, I don't know if this is true everywhere. I bet it is. But like, you probably, a lot of actors probably go, well, if I go down that road, like you're, you can't, they, they don't really think of it as fluid. They think, well, now you're that. You're just that. You're a musical theater performer right. and you're not. So I just was like, I don't want to be boxed in. I really loved doing musicals. I would still love, I would love to do another musical, uh, truly. The last one I did was like 2009 and um, with Andrew Lloyd Webber himself. I thought it was a pretty good note to what? go out on. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I got to work with Andrew Lloyd Webber and we did a, oh he was doing like sort of like his version of like out of town tryouts. So he took the musical to Winnipeg. There's a very uh, big theater in um, Manitoba called Manitoba Theater Center. So we did a run in Manitoba and then we did a run at the Royal Alex in Toronto, which is a huge, beautiful uh, historic theater. And uh, he flew in on his private jet. <laughs> and I, I just, I still can't believe, like I worked with Angela Weber. Did he talk to me personally? Did he know me wow. my name? No, 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 he did not. But I was like the second female lead in this show. So I was, I mean, I was wow. thrilled and I would love to do uh, more musicals. I mean, I want to do it all, but, the, but there's, there's pros and cons to this, which is if you pick one lane, maybe you could stay in that lane and then you get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then maybe you have more stability, but that just never interest, interest. Like I want diversity. I want variety. I want to mix it up. But with that comes, I think sometimes moments of real instability, you know what I mean? And it can be really yeah. scary, but I keep, but I chose it. I chose it and I chose it for a reason. It's like when you go to a restaurant or a wine tasting or, or any like, and, and there's the choice of you can have this one thing, or you can have this sort of um, platter or a, a, a flight of drinks. Like I will yeah. always choose the combo, the variety, the flight, because I like, I like to sample and try. It's, it, I just realized this recently about myself, like the way that I, choose to eat and drink is the way that I've chosen what I do with my career. And so I say this because if anybody is listening, like I used to feel bad about it. Like, why didn't you just pick one thing and then just like excel and like, just have stability. It's just like, well, I just want to flip that on its head and be like, I love that about myself. I do it for a reason. I like it, but there are hard moments in your life when you do that. But you know what? Oh, sorry. You know what I mean? Like, I'd rather have moments yeah. of um, instability or challenges than boredom. Right? So yeah. that was a really all over the place answer to your question. <laughs> but I, oh, I didn't answer the writing part. So I came to, so I got my green card because I had this, you know, pretty healthy acting career in Canada, right? So I was awarded the green card. Mm -hmm an alien of extraordinary ability. Can you even? 
Amazing. <laughs> no, no, please. What a title. <laughs> yeah, I went around and I just would show people, excuse me, excuse me. Um, and so I was auditioning and I was here and I was like, I'm, I want to, I'm going to try and what, make it. <laughs> and, um, and I just started writing more and more. As soon as I came to Los Angeles, I just started to write more and more. And I had this play and it got picked up by a major theater in Toronto. And, uh, and I was like, oh, I wrote a play. And then I wrote a TV, like a sample episode of television. And then I got this award um, at this like international television festival in Banff. And because of that award, I then got staffed on my first show like as a writing job on that. And so it kind of just like started to happen. And I was, and I was like, you know what? I think this is good. I'm going to, I'm going to like put all my eggs in this basket, this writing basket. Well, then as soon as I said, I'm going to put all my eggs in this writing basket, I got cast as a lead on a Canadian TV show. We did four seasons of that. And so, and then I won like, um, like sort of the Canadian version of the Emmy award for acting on that show. So I thought life is funny. Just when you think you're, you're going to try and make decisions and like tell life, this is what I'm doing now. You, you kind of have to throw that out the window and say, uh, life might have other plans. And so that was great. I was acting, I was writing. And again, I told you at the beginning about how, like, I just came upon this uh, writing books and I, I couldn't be happier. It was such a, it was such a, it was such an enjoyable experience writing the book. It wasn't angst ridden. And I think, again, it was because my companions were all the women in this book. You know what I mean? Like they were with me. Yeah. They were my sisters, my mothers, my brethren. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what an what an incredible journey. And yeah, like to to write and learn about these women must have been what an experience to like really dive into that. It was amazing. So you mentioned earlier that you have another book that's coming out. We wanted to ask, like, our last question was just, what other projects do you have going on? Um, I don't know if you can talk about that book or not. Well, I won't, like, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, uh, I, get, I get superstitious, right? Like, I get very nervous about talking about stuff because but I will say I, I am working on a second book and we just started to go out to editors and publishers uh, just this past week. And, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. I love this new project. I think it would be a great companion piece to Frank. It's definitely like the same tone, the same vibe. Um, not obviously about women who disguise themselves, uh, in any way, but, um, you know, I, the, the, let me be Frank sold so quickly and it was, it all happened really fast and it was really amazing. So, I'm told by my other, my author friends that that doesn't necessarily always happen. <laughs> so I've measured my expectations in terms of like, I'm very hopeful that it's going to sell. But at the same time, I mean, I'm just also open to this idea. Like I just said, like, like life might have other plans for me. And there are various irons in the fire. I will say we're also, my fingers are all super crossed because we're in negotiations with some producers who want to option, let me be frank, to Ooh, possibly exciting. turn it into something else, right? Whether that be something on screen or something, I don't know. It's all very uh, negotiation phase. And I'm very hopeful because it would be some sort of an amazing full circle moment too, because it started off as a TV idea. I don't know if it will, if we'll, if, you know, it, again, so many question marks. 
you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and go like, I want to keep telling these stories. I want to keep pushing my feminist agenda and dismantling the patriarchy in any way that I can while having a sense of humor. But that also includes, I have to have a sense of humor about me, my life, my career, my, we, it's like the older I get, the more I go, I'm just so sick of this worry. Like I just, like, I just, I I just want to like embrace. It's really hard to embrace uncertainty. Wouldn't you say it's very, it's absolutely, it's it's really hard, but it's power. It's, it's a powerful thing to be able to do, to say, I have a sense of humor. I'm alive. I woke up today right on, you know, and I've gotten to do a lot of amazing things and I'm going to keep trying my best to, to continue to do things. This all sounds very like, Tracy, do you need to talk to your therapist? (laughs) But um, this is therapy for us to hear. Yes. I just did a podcast episode uh, with my friend who's in Australia uh, and it was all about rejection and like the the gifts that rejection gives us. It's the same with like failure, rejection, grief. These are huge things that also come with gifts. And I think you only learn that by being alive longer, like continuing to live and realizing that, that, that there's, that there's gifts there. And so I'm in this really uncertain place, but there's like irons in the fire. So you just go, okay, let's just like keep plowing ahead and my doing my best to like be nice to myself. If there's anything I could tell your listeners, do your best today to be nice to yourself. Well, is that, is that cheesy? (laughs) No, it's, it's something I feel like people need to hear. Like I need to hear it every once in a while. So like, thank you for that. We appreciate it. Oh, so much love. I just, I just have so much love for, for, uh, for those of us who are trying to fight the good fight. Yes. And uh, thank you for creating work out there that does fight the good fight and presents it in such a fun way. Like that, that, those are all the questions we have for you today. Um, I don't know if you have any final words for our listeners or we can just leave it at that last message. That was pretty good. (laughs) It was very like, well, please find me on uh, Instagram or Twitter. I have the same handle. It's at Dawson Tracy. I'd love to see you. You can hear, because it's like, that's where all my stuff about my different events or anything like new projects and stuff like that. And uh, I just love chatting with you today. I hope, I hope I made sense. It's, is that, is that so silly when people are like, you never hear a man say that. I hope I made sense. Ugh. Strike it from the record. Would, Judge. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they would. Oh, there. Our listeners will leave you with that. But yes, please support Tracy. Find her on all, all the social medias and check out Let Me Be Frank. It's You will not regret it. It's amazing. It's a quick read. It's awesome. You'll learn a lot. Uh, it's an enjoyable read. Thank you so read. much for being with us today. It's an enjoyable read and it's, uh, if you, you know, you can purchase it. I will say, even though it's an evil conglomerate and I don't know when this episode is going to air, but for women's history month, Amazon has made it an incredible discounted price. Like, uh, you know, if you're against them, trust me, I I also am. However, I understand needing a, a good bargain, a good deal. And so, you know, go find the book. And you know what? It's also in a lot of libraries. I'm so thrilled to say I love libraries. So if you want to go check it out of the library, I would love it. Yes. So check out the book anywhere you can get it. And uh, thank you so much for being with with us today, Tracy. We had I had so much fun talking to you. This was great. 
Thank you um, so much. You as well. So this is great. This is great. All right, guys, we're going to sign off for now and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. And with that, we've been Big Gay Energy. If you like this episode, check out all our other episodes on whatever you're using to listen right now. If you're listening on Apple, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review, no matter how brief. It helps us get into Apple's algorithm to reach a wider audience. Please feel free to reach out to us. We would love to hear from you about everything and anything. You can find us on all the social medias at Big Gay Energy Pod or email us at BigGayEnergyPod at gmail.com. If you'd like to make friends with other queer media-loving people, reach out to us to join our Discord server. If you'd like to support us, check out our merch store or join our Patreon for early access to episodes, exclusive content, and so much more. Until next time, stay safe and hydrate for Lesbian Jesus.